0: Hello, my name is Jonathan Weiner, and welcome to this edition of Headroom. Headroom is a place where I'll explore themes around audio technology, music production, and innovation. And today I'm going to be joined by Shahan Nursesian. Shahan is a senior research engineer at Isotope in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Shahan holds a doctorate in philosophy and electrical engineering, and has worked on image processing and audio applications. He's also a guitarist, and a keyboardist, and a composer. Shahan, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me, John.
0: Yeah, you know, it's my pleasure. Um, before we dive into the nerdy stuff, um, and I, I, my sense of you is that there's plenty of nerdy stuff in there, um,
1: but you're a musician, are you not? I am, yeah. This has kind of been like a... A dream situation finally to be able to marry my love of uh, engineering stuff and uh, machine learning and dsp uh with music i've been playing music for as long as i can remember actually i can remember it pretty well because when i really got into music i didn't have any friends which is kind of what <laughs> got me into music probably um yes and i've been a, i was a metalhead from the age of five which always scared my parents and then i started finally to uh um, play guitar, uh, around the age of like 12 or 13. Um, I had taken some classical piano lessons before that. And then that got me into, uh, jazz music and jazz based music. Uh, and I had a live hip hop band, uh, during college. Uh, we kind of played all around Boston and the like and funk bands and making beats and getting into electronic music. So it's, it's, it's all there. It's, uh, it's my livelihood.
0: That's awesome. So, actually, I've asked this question of some other folks too. I'm really curious. When did music and technology get hooked up for you, as a guitarist and as you know, taking classical piano lessons? It's not a given, but maybe growing up in the 21st century or the late 20th century, it might be a given. I don't know. When, what What's your story?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always had the the knack for math. I guess it was always kind of like my uh, favorite subject, um, and then I was always doing music. Um, I guess on the side, and then it became just like a pretty integral part of my life. And uh, it's kind of funny that it took me a while to really be able to connect it, even though I was always aspiring to do that. Like I had gone to uh, Tufts University some 10 years ago, and my capstone project at that time was like implementing a very crude source separation algorithm. But then it took me some, you know, I'm not going to say how many years after that, but like, you know, some, some 10 10, 12 years after that to actually be a part of uh, a company like Isotope and actually be working directly in musical applications. So you were working with
0: this technology in other applications that maybe had different um, requirements as far as the outcomes.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure.
0: Ah, Interesting. Um, Cool. Well, and actually, um, I had the pleasure of working on a couple of recordings. Actually, you participated in the last record that you made. Um, I think your love of math
1: showed up in the record, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, I think that for better or worse, I kind of think like a musician when I'm doing engineering work, and I think maybe like a mathematician <laughs> or an engineer when I'm doing music work. So for better or worse, <laughs> it shows up.
0: Well, that's that's a, that actually sounds like a lovely... Kind of confused state in both cases.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're they're both disciplines. They have their their theories and you can uh, try to go really down them, but at the same time, intuition holds true uh, more than anything else. And really, you're just trying to build intuition by learning about things more, you know, like especially something like jazz improvisation. It's all based on that, you know, you just have concepts in your head and you transcribe phrases and that turns into your vernacular the same way you read a paper and a certain idea really, uh, resonates with you and you try to integrate it into your work. So there's a lot of parallels there for sure.
0: Excellent. Well, so I'm going to use that as a segue. Uh, since um, the implication being that when you do some of this engineering work, you have some of the rudiments under your fingertips so that you can start to improvise and be creative with the tools. So let's first talk about the rudiments. Yeah. So so there, there are, uh, let's see, AI, w- what does artificial intelligence actually mean?
1: Yeah, so there, it, it pays to kind of be able to like demystify the buzzwords a little bit. Yes. Uh, you know, you hear, you hear like, Deep learning, machine learning, AI, you hear all these terms thrown together, um, and there's a reason for that, um, and hopefully it'll become clear in a moment, but it's also hard to kind of keep track of what is what. Um, Really AI is just kind of like an umbrella term uh, for any sort of algorithm or uh, any sort of process that um, gives a computer some sort of ability to perceive or make intelligent decisions. Um, and so if we kind of think about it like uh, like that, then machine learning is kind of like a subset of that. And that's basically that uh, you can you can come up with uh, intelligent algorithms that are rooted in the uh, algorithm designer's experience, right? But you can also kind of take a data-driven approach so that you don't actually exp- explicitly program how the, the computer program would need to be sensing. And that it's kind of like... We can use data itself to be able to have the just, just exposure to data um, for a machine to understand the concepts that it needs to learn to be able to fulfill a particular task. And then uh, deep learning is um, a subset of machine learning, which is basically application of uh, very deep neural networks, which uh, have very high model capacity and uh, expressivity, and they're it's really relying on data even more so than quote unquote classical machine learning algorithms um, to be able to decipher the things it needs to understand to be able to carry out a particular task. Hmm.
0: I think I
1: understand that some of that feels a little bit meta, but um, yeah, I, I can give a concrete example. So like, yeah, you know, if we're, great. if we're going to take like a, like a chess AI, right. Um, on one extreme, you can kind of come up with like, you know, based on your experience of having played chess and that the fact that you're going to be the algorithm designer here, you could maybe look at any given chess board, right? Any configuration of it and be able to like assess some sort of score or metric that you devise yourself that kind of like evaluates, like a heuristic that evaluates, okay, this is the status of the board. And then based on that, I'm going to want to uh, make a move that will make that metric go up if, I, if the point is like, you know, like my probability of winning or that it puts me in a better configuration or something of that like. Um, on the other extreme, there's... I analyzed every single move that Gary Kasparov has made ever. And I can use that plethora of knowledge to be able to just uh, automatically kind of discern what type of things I need to look for to be able to make the right chess move. Interesting. So on one extreme, it's yep. kind of like you come up with a heuristic that you hope holds up. It's, it's rooted in your, in some circumstantial experience that you have, but you actually hand code um, the algorithm that actually carries out the certain thing that you like, making a chess move here. And on the other extreme, it's like, I've analyzed all the data in the world uh, to be, and based on all of that analysis, the computer has automatically been able to devise um, the lens that it needs to see the world in so that it can predict what would be the, the next best move for you to make.
0: Got you. So do, does one approach or the other lend itself more or less to uh, sort of creative work?
1: Uh, that ask me again next year. I feel the, the the answer to that is is always changing. You know, like I would say that um, you know in the AI in the in the audio editor's toolkit or the music maker's toolkit, we have um, you know we can even call some of them dumb processors. And then we have some intelligent processors that you can even, if you want to stretch the word, can be considered like a weak form of AI, like any sort of processor that senses something about the signal and then knows to react to that in some particular way. You can kind of consider as like, you know, it's an intelligent, we call it an intelligent processor. Therefore, it is perceiving your signal somehow and reacting accordingly, which is Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know. There, there can maybe that's that correlates very highly with a textbook definition of what artificial intelligence is right on the other extreme, you know, machine learning, uh, deep learning, which are kind of like these data driven type of things. Um, right now, we there are certain classes of algorithms um, that are kind of well understood and we understand the implications of using them and really we're kind of trailblazing particularly on the audio front of seeing how we can enable creativity to be able to facilitate workflows to be able to do new forms of processing to do new forms of audio synthesis that have either been uh things that people have actually been dreaming about forever but they just didn't know how it was possible to actually have it or things that people didn't even it it wouldn't be even in their wildest dreams that these could be new creative tools that can be used so we're kind of really at this impetus, especially I would say that compared to like uh, the, the, the computer vision field, we might be at least a few years ago, you definitely say we'd be like lagging a little bit behind f- from them. Um, and that's due because audio has all, all of its complexities and subtleties in it. That makes it a little bit harder to model sometimes. But there are certain things that are being very well understood. And really, there's a lot of push of like how we can make specifically machine learning and, and deep learning uh, enable creativity, enable new forms of processing, et cetera.
0: Um, before we come back to a couple more definitions, because there are a couple of other terms I think would be um, worth unpacking. Um, you know, I want to ask the question. So first of all, do we really understand what's going on inside a neural network? Um, you know, or is it something of a black box? Um, are we sort of creating this environment? but we're not, You know, in the same way that we're not sure how a three-year-old actually acquires language, Mm-hmm. with you know we give them inputs and man this magic happens we don't quite understand it um so i'll just put that question out there
1: yeah so i guess the answer is uh yes and no um definitely there's a piece of it that you just kind of set up this model and then you just turn the crank and you uh shovel data into it and you hope that the the neural network learns the concept like being able to classify audio being able to classify uh clip as being a guitar versus a a trumpet or drums or whatever um or what have you um but it's actually interesting we've kind of gone in that direction we're kind of like we call that like black box modeling um and there have been recent pushes and there's some things that i've been very interested in some papers that have come out like uh, for example there's this one concept that came out from uh, magenta which is called uh Differentiable digital signal processing and that's kind of actually trying to bring us a little bit away from that can we use simpler models that can inject kind of this the biases that we understand of how to process audio like we have this expansive audio toolkit of different types of uh, algorithms like compressors and equalizers and wave shapers and all these types of tools that we use in sound design and the like. And why can't those things be applied in the context of a neural network, um, both to simplify the model uh, architecture and to give us um, a little bit better interpretability, but also because we already sometimes you kind of know what the answer is supposed to be like. So you might as well be able to use what they call like inductive bias to be able to impose the fact that, you know, for this particular task, this is how audio works. This is how you do it. But we just want the machine uh, to learn kind of like the right way of setting it up. Uh-huh. So in
0: that sense, it, it's facilitating workflows, but not necessarily introducing anything new to the equation. It's it's maybe replicating something that's known.
1: Actually, in, th- in, this, in this particular scenario, it's almost like you imagine that you have these different audio processors that you might use. And the machine learning algorithm can very fancily automate these different processors to be able to achieve a particular task. So it's something that could actually enable a uh, new processing kind of on the other, on the side of like enabling workflows, um, which is something that we kind of have throughout our suite of products is this idea of, can you um, be able to combine some AI algorithms, some deep learning algorithms to kind of give you the best context to uh what is in your session, what are you tracking, the different elements in that, that exist in your mix, and be able to use your information, that information to be able to drive uh, particular decisions on how to set certain things up.
0: You know, another question that's coming to my mind as I'm listening to you speak. So um, a lot of when we talk about my experiences, when we talk about using machine learning uh, to inform the tools or to inform a workflow, a lot of the work is done in advance. Uh, And then the uh, data that's available to be assisting the user or assisting the machine or both Mm -hmm. in this case, perhaps um, it's kind of Um, pre-baked. Is there a way in which you see this being a, you know, down the road, a real time process? There being some kind of, you know, learning that's taking place in real time and fast enough in a way that it would actually be useful to a user?
1: Yeah, sure. There's, like, different applications of, like, you kind of start with a pre-baked type of system that isn't done in real time, has that, like, upfront development to it. Um, And then if it's kind of deployed in the right way, you can then be able to do, like, kind of incremental updates based on new feedback that you've uh, gotten from, say, a user or having been exposed to a a new clip, uh, things of that nature. But could you imagine a machine, actually um,
0: a deep learning network, being able to update itself? I mean, based on based on some kind of user feedback or some kind of new data, uh, based on you know repeated events, for instance.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Like again, kind of like the 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 the, the pre-baked thing that comes off from this neural net will be kind of like its initial understanding of the world, and it can be adapted and molded. Uh, if it though there might need to be the right like human in the loop depending on the task at hand um but it's definitely something that's possible and very interesting
0: yeah as with a three-year-old they will learn whatever they're presented with so exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's let's go back to a couple of other um just phrases that i think are are interesting um they're they're my understanding which is uh, relatively naive but i understand that there's several different sort of models that you can use to train networks, such as supervised learning mm-hmm. versus adversarial learning. These are sort of some of the building blocks of setting up these networks. What, what are some of the basic sort of um, definitions that you think people might find interesting to understand differences in the models?
1: Yeah, uh, I could probably come up with like three dichotomies that are interesting. Um, So one is this thing of supervised versus unsupervised. And this is kind of like when you're setting up uh, your model to, to be trained for a particular task, kind of what data do you have associated with it? Um, And, and specifically we're talking about what type of metadata or labels that we have associated with it. Uh, So let's say that you're trying to train um, like a, like an image classifier to be able to discern dogs from cats, from monkeys and the like Um, it, if that's kind of like the task at hand, it wouldn't be sufficient to just be able to just have images of the dogs and the cats and the monkeys for every image. You would also have to have associated with it, that particular label that image number 27 is one of a cat and image number 109 is that of a dog. Um, So that's called supervised learning. So it's when the, the algorithm itself requires for models to be trained successfully to fulfill the task at hand, it requires not only the data, but some sort of labeling or metadata associated with each data example. Um, and that helps drive uh, the network to understand the concept. It's it's like literally imagine that you actually have as input an image of a particular animal. And in training, what the network is going to do is uh, try to refine the lens with which it sees the world so that it interprets that image as whatever label you want it to be. So in that case, it kind of seems natural that just having the images on their own isn't enough. Um, There is also unsupervised learning uh, and unsupervised learning is when uh, either you don't have the luxury of, uh, having labels, or when it's not really the aim of the system, what you're trying to do with it. Like um, one thing you might want to do is there's there's this one type of architecture called an autoencoder, and what it tries to do is the input to the model is say it's uh, say it's an image again, or maybe it's a clip of audio, and the only thing that this autoencoder is trying to do is be able to reconstruct that exact same input. And you're like, why would a network want to do that? And it basically ends up being that if you set up this autoencoder in a particular way, um, particularly to do something like model compression, you can have this unsupervised algorithm be able to understand the underlying structure of the data. So it can kind of be able to like learn a compressed representation that you can, after which you can do certain things with, or just gives you that interpretability. So that's kind of like the unsupervised piece. This is like, if you have a particular task where you don't have those labels, but you have the data and you want to learn something about that data. Um, so when we talk about discriminative models, really what we care about, and again, it's kind of funny that I'm kind of going to the same example of classification, um, that's kind of, usually it's solved as a discriminative task. and That's because what we really care about doing is being able to to model the decision boundary of data. So, like, say, example, that we have two classes, like we have the dogs and the cats, and we can train a network that all we really care about is drawing the line that separates these two networks. And we don't really care about anything about the data points themselves. Just that we draw that line in the best way that we can separate them. A generative model... Uh, which generative models are are really catching a lot of steam? They really try to um, learn the underlying distribution of data, which is pretty. Uh, it's, it's actually kind of like a pretty vast concept what that even means. And I think that like if you think about like what a like a random number generator, I think we kind of all understand what that is. You can imagine. I think of like, you know, in in the mall when there's an arcade and there's a claw machine, and you can direct this claw machine to try to pull anything from it. Hopefully you actually get a toy, but you usually don't. But let's say in this example, you'll <laughs> all, at least will always get a toy. Um, so what learning the distribution of data is like is we're trying to learn the probability distribution of our data. So that's kind of like if we take this this claw machine, what a probability distribution function is really telling you is like okay, the claw is going to be pulling from this position with some probability, and this position with a different probability. And you know, if it's centered around a certain place, you'll see that more times than not, it will be pulling. A cl- the, it'll be trying to pull a toy from this particular position in the claw machine. But now, what does it mean to be able to derive this probability distribution of the of the data? Like trying to really learn this internals of the underlying data. It's trying to say, like if we take an audio example, it's trying to say, what is the probability that the first sample is equal to 0.2, and the second sample is equal to 0.7, and the third sample is equal to minus 0.3, and trying to learn this extremely complex distribution because then what the main goal of a generative model is, is that we can treat it like a run, a, a, a random number generator almost, where we say, okay, claw machine, based on your understanding of how the data works, just go go to some location based on the probability distribution that you've learned and pick me a new example. And then that claw will spit it out and it'll be a new audio example that matches kind of like the uh, characteristics of the data that it was uh, trained on. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty uh, novel concept. Basically, one of the manifestations of that now that you see is, I don't know if you've seen in like kind of computer vision where um, people are able to randomly generate images of faces that look indiscernible from reality and those face images are completely synthetic they represent identities that don't even exist in reality but they look so lifelike because the model has been able to understand basically this probability distribution of how people's faces work so it's a pretty uh powerful kind of crazy concept that we're seeing cer- certain examples of, say in computer vision, and there are certain applications uh, to audio that people are really kind mm-hmm. of getting into. Oh, I'd love to hear an example, but it, I just want to uh, utter
0: this thought that you're reminding me of. It reminds me a little bit of the notion of samples as the DNA of what's being generated or, or convolution,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, sort of being, you know, taking some kind of existent complex, Sort of thing that's got its own integrity, and using that as the foundation for the 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 generation of something else
1: is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, for sure. Like, it's kind of interesting because like the um, the base representation for something specifically like audio is uh, it's a little bit of a moving target, and that's kind of more uh, a matter of necessity than it is maybe out of philosophy. I think everyone wants to be modeling audio, like as, as a time domain waveform. Sometimes we're stuck with more using like a spectral representation, which is, which already kind of has some like built in priors and, uh, data compression that is like perceptually relevant, kind of built into it. Uh, but that's an interesting, uh, piece of that. Yeah, for sure. You are a philosopher of, (laughs) you have a
0: doctoral degree in philosophy of engineering. in electrical engineering yes okay great that that sets gives us perfect context for all of this okay (laughs) um all right so so going back to what you were saying earlier so can can we sort of bring this down to a slightly more mundane level i guess and and talk about some applications like you know what does this facilitate earlier Mm -hmm. you were talking about generative models um or or even some of the other descriptions you were giving Mm -hmm. about different learning models um, giving us the power to unlock certain kinds of tasks, um, yep. uh, you know, give, give us some examples of those. I mean, I think, I assume that source separation and classification are, are relatively simple concepts that most, most listeners at this point can digest pretty easily. Take us up a level, like, you know, talk to us about some other, other kinds of, um, tasks that we can use this technology to help us with.
1: Yeah. Great. I'll I'll probably start at with uh source separation as like a little bit of a primer of like kind of like a first step on how we can actually like really make monumental changes to audio that we didn't expect to be able to make you know basically source separation is the idea that you have a mixture of different signals they can be multiple tracks in a session or they could be multiple musicians playing in like a live performance and to be able to decompose them into their individual constituents or be able to mix them together uh, uh however you please. Um, and this is something that like kind of stepping back to like, why all of this is happening, like why is machine learning proving to be important? It speaks to the fact that if we had to be able to hand design algorithms to do this, we wouldn't get very far. We could try a little bit. We can do certain things. It might work in some context. We have to make, uh, underlying assumptions that aren't always going to hold true. And it's. I don't know if it's demoralizing or not, but the fact that you can just have a data-driven approach that is like as long as you are giving the model enough experience and exposure to the world around it so that it understands these concepts, it can outperform you know, you trying to figure out every single edge case of, you know, if they're using a Rickenbacker and if they're doing this and if they're doing that, you know, so that's kind of already like an interesting piece of like, why, why is this push happening? Right. Um, I think kind of more speaking to, you know, forward thinking things like we are already seeing some of this manifested in like in our voice assistants, Uh, Text to speech is something that has been growing a, a lot and we're, we're we're feeling the benefits of that without knowing, you know, like um, we can be able to have uh, machine learning models that can model several speakers and speak text or basically utter text in the voice of any of them, or be able to convert one person's voice into another one, or to be able to, uh, you know, do this type of thing, but then maybe be able to learn some more expressive parameters so if you wanted to change some aspect of the underlying performance which is it's pretty crazy what we think about an audio is that you have the performance and then you add effects to it to to be able to create uh a, a new variation of that performance so you you distort it or you add chorus to it or you eq it but we're not actually trying to change the underlying performance and it's kind of crazy that if you throw enough data and speech in terms of the audio realm speech is uh extensively studied problem um it's just very important and it just the, the the human voice is such as like an integral part of our being that there's a lot of research that's going into this so the fact that you can model different speakers and you can be able to convert their voices and that you can be able to maybe uh simulate vocal fry or to be able to make them have a more breathy sound or, or all these different types of things it's it's pretty wild just thinking about it like a very high level of what the implications are gonna be for how you can process audio and how that can actually really enable new plugins that are i mean you were talking about creative just things that you'd never existed you had those creative tools so that's like what's really exciting about it the problem with it is that there—that that it's a, it's a very hard task and up till now you know like us audio people, like, we're sticklers. If we hear a single artifact, we say, this is rubbish. It's immediately uninstalled. You know, we already go on the Gear Sluts forum. It's all <laughs> written down there, right? So, to like, the, the, the potential is there at this point. There's some very, like, chilling applications that are already kind of, like, coming out. you are like, wow, I didn't think that this is actually, like, this mature that it could happen. But you mm-hmm. could still see that, like... Th- you, you you can definitely poke holes in it and see, okay, it sounds this way. There's still a distinction, you know? So it'll be interesting to see how they will close that gap in time, but it's just a very interesting time to be a, an audio mis- machine learning researcher.
0: Yeah. So you use the, the word chilling and, you know, in the last uh, couple of minutes you were talking, the uh, the phrase deepfake um, yeah. came to mind. Um, yep. it's, it's, you know, I'm going to make an analogy that I'm, I'm not sure it's a perfect one, but um it reminds me just a little bit of um or the, the thought of my head reminds me of what happened when MIDI came out. That mm-hmm. um MIDI um in some ways allowed you to to connect a performative event to a sound source and and enable you to do things um, for instance, a, a single person could sound like an orchestra, band in mm-hmm. a box, basically. Um and so, you know, the on one hand one sort of grail there was to do just that. You know, let's make an orchestra with using sampling and other, you know, or or possibly, you know, some highly sophisticated synthesis. Let's do the best that we can to recreate the sound of an orchestra. The other was to do so, something completely different, um, and create something completely new. And um, you know, the creative uh potential here is really fascinating and amazing, like what you were saying. You know, to be able, I remember I used to be able to drive my uh, a pitch to MIDI converter with a trumpet mm-hmm. and play an elephant sample with pitch bend. And, you know, I had my sort of trumpet articulation. I could mix the sounds together. And this was like something new under the sun. I mean, I'm not saying it was good, but it was new anyway. Yeah. Um, but um, so the, the creative aspect of this is fascinating and interesting. Um, but the the deep fake, I mean, is it is does it worry you is it disturbing should we be worried about
1: yeah well it's interesting that you said that thing about midi um because i just talked about that thing about fidelity and say how we're sticklers and it's like you know it's really awesome to watch you know certain things of like yeah midi came out look at this look at this trumpet sound and it's like you listen to it now it's like it's just comical but at that time like uh you know, maybe it was comical then too. I'm not quite sure because I wasn't there for it. But that, that potential like, I, was I was, was
0: at, I was, and I'll tell you it was comical. But um
1: But people that, maybe that? at least saw the potential that at some point in time this could turn into something that does this. And the first thing that I want to say before like the deep fake thing is I wanna because the MIDI one is such a great example because there's this like there's the intimidation factor of like I spend all my time running scales on this thing and now these people want to do this thing and now that turned into like you know having samplers and you know sampling is in music and all this thing came out and i i like to first argue what what is rooted in intimidation and what is rooted in actual actually being like offended with the concept like me these types of new technologies they don't intimidate me they actually inspire me it's kind of like all right i never thought about that before now It's a given that I can think about that. And what's next? I don't know if that's exactly, uh, if that's actually the answer to your deep fake thing of like, well, it already happened. So (laughs) get used to it. As a scientist, my job is first and foremost to understand like what is possible and maybe figure out the, the dissemination details after the fact. I don't know if it's like the, the healthiest stance, but it's, it, it's, it's the one that I, I take on.
0: <laughs> well, is that was that from your course on ethics? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. this one, but, all yeah. right, go on.
1: So, I, I mean, I think it's something that we're gonna have to think about, you know, deep and hard and like, you know, fortunately, the like right at least right at this moment, Fortunately, the fidelity isn't there to fool someone 100%. So we can at least be able to like push in the direction of like, you know, oh, wow, this would actually be really useful if I could do this. Like, I'm not capable of doing X because of some limitation. But if only I could come up with this processor that I never even thought could potentially exist. Now I can do that. You know, like, yeah, it, it's it's kind, of, it's kind of like you you don't know until until it happens a little bit. I mean. Obviously, we have to tread some caution, but uh, I mean, it's pretty nebulous. And I sometimes don't know exactly where that line is. Like right now, I, I, I'd rather be a trailblazer in terms of pushing the tech and making it happen and exemplifying that it can happen as opposed to telling me uh, not to do it. You know? Sure. Uh, you're reminding me
0: of another example of technology that um, auto-tune
1: yeah, for um, sure.
0: or tuning technology, which, you know, to the, the trained ear, um, you can almost always detect. Uh, there's yep. some, some change and yet that actually not only did that not inhibit the adoption of the technology, but in some cases it actually led to a creation of new genres. Yeah, I mean, you know, the there's, share there's, like the auto tune is now an instrument. And I, I can imagine that the lack of fidelity of the result, the totally believable deep fake may, may in some cases not be an issue at all, but the artifact may actually lead to creative work.
1: Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, there's like there's, there's that whole cultural implications of like where those kind of things take. And Like if we kind of go back even a step away from Auto Tune, it was like, you know, the first time they someone heard a drum sample or heard the eight hundred eight circuit, and they're like, that don't sound like my snare drum. Some people said we don't care. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're gonna ride with this and like yeah. see see where it went. You
0: know. Yeah. <laughs> so is there a, is there a way in which as a guitarist, let's say totally fanciful, maybe not a great example, but that there, the technology had gotten to the point where you, you're, you're a virtuoso on your guitar. So Mm -hmm. you articulate a melody with just the nuance that you want. And what comes out is a completely credible example of Beyonce singing what you just played without any detectable sort of lack of, you know, any detectable artifact, totally believable, even to the, you know, a, the trained ear would you want that uh i am
1: i am operating under the assumption that we can <laughs> you know in in 2020 i think that we still have a little work to do but i think that people are invested in trying to figure this thing out you know mm-hmm. uh so i think it'll just be that amazing thing like we didn't realize that you can replace the whole analog studio with just a laptop and go on the road and do all these different things, you know, and, uh, yeah. that happened. It took time. There were probably skeptics then, you know, all all right. we're, we're always going to have to one up ourselves, you know, and like the things to be skeptical about. And so this is going to be what we're skeptical about now.
0: <laughs> so where, where does the idea of virtuosity and nuance live in these tools? I mean, you know, This is another
1: great point that I'm going to actually interject with another thing of like, you know, how I, I'm a, I'm a trained jazz musician. I love it. I love everything that it comes with. I love everything that I had to go through to be able to, you know, uh, express myself in that way. And then like with all the music theory and all the scales and all the phrases and all that stuff like that, it turns out that in for, for most people's ears, including myself, Sound design is probably more important than all that stuff. Being able to be uh, understand how to compose and um, layer and arrange from that mindset of a producer and make thinking about that whole tonal quality of things as opposed to just the notes and just the rhythms and just you know, the core melody, the kind of like, you know, the lead sheet that you used to have like in a, in, the, in like a real book that are just like, the chords and the the and melodies sh- should be the whole song and everything kind of comes from that. We've already moved way far away from them. Those are like, uh, those are great skills to have. And I think that they will always make any production better, but they're kind of like the secondary skills. They're almost like the obsolete, like old people skills. And there's like a new wave of tools that now you need to, you need to know this stuff or you, you're not actually doing it. And so I'm in I'm intrigued to see, you know, there's always been thing of like analog versus digital ba But there's at some point in time there's gonna be like, you know, do you have an understanding of the intelligent tools enough to be able to create this new sound? Or are you still stuck in doing it that old way? You know? That's just like how it's always gonna be, you know. So I don't know, I don't know what that new sound is gonna be. But it might be one that leverages directly being able to understand how to use the new intelligent tools. So
0: is the idea of sophistication and virtuosity different in each one of these cases, or is it just applied in different areas? I mean, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about, you know, you playing the guitar. It's a, it's a, a millisecond to millisecond performative virtuosity, mm-hmm. as opposed to the sound design aspect, which is um, a little bit out of real time. Right, Um, right. You know, there's, and and it allows for iteration and it's a, it's a, and, but, but there's a virtuosity, I think in both contexts or, or do you think that they're different? And now we're really sort of getting meta level, but I'm curious to get your thoughts.
1: Yeah. uh, I mean, I'm going to have the bias that like live music will live forever and stuff like that, but you know, there's already that, that, that thing of like, they're, they're really just two different types of different muscles that you're flexing right that's the i mean as you said that's really what it's all about if you can flex both muscles and they can hold a lot of weight that's the that's always going to be the best right um it's interesting, though, you know, just based on how, the way people are consuming music, and like, unfortunately, now there aren't too many live shows. I mean, there are live streams and the like here, no, but I'm actually, those right live those live streams actually allow for a little bit of non real timeness to go on to, and actually, live shows are now always enhanced with non real timeness as well. So that's that's the interesting uh, crux in that one, you know. Yeah,
0: all of that is really, really interesting and fascinating, and it's interesting to consider whether we are witnessing a a real sea change mm-hmm. in terms of how we interact with music making um yeah. or or whether it's, we're sort of mapping activities from one mode to another i guess that's part of part of where um the, the question that i'm asking without really necessarily being able to have a complete answer
1: yeah it's kind of like where is the the act of thinking gonna be concentrated like uh I think I had mentioned this to Mitch Gallagher, not when I he he asked me kind of similar questions, but uh, in a in a Sweetwater video one time. But if not, I'm just gonna say it here. And that's kind of like, you know, back in the day, you had to remember. I mean, I had to learn my times tables. I hope everyone still needs to know their times tables at at the very least. But like people had to do, had to, they had to memorize their trigonometric identities and all these types of things. No no one cares about that. You don't need to know that everything is just that that type of information is just uh, like a Google search away. Just just check check it on Wikipedia and you're immediately uh, empowered with that knowledge. So why do you need to focus your your limited uh, like brain number of brain cells to focus on those things when it's it's already there? You'll be able to recall it without actually needing to know it yourself. So understanding that now it's kind of like, okay, what are different avenues that we can forge ahead in? Given that 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 is like that, you know, like I know that people are some people might be skeptical of some of our assistive technology. We always kind of talk about it as a starting point, uh, kind of like these 80/20 rules to get you to a good place. And again, there's kind of like, is it skepticism rooted in that they can't believe it's going to be good? Is it rooted in intimidation and all that stuff like that? Like, why wouldn't you want to be put in a situation where? it's like those trig identities that they're just mm-hmm. a Wikipedia page away. If you need to get to it, you could probably, you can derive anything. You, you can do anything in your, in your life. You, you can, you can take your time to do anything you want, but if you don't want to deal with that stuff, don't do that. And then just think about given that that information exists and is ubiquitous, then figure out what else you actually want to focus on, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's actually like, you know, as a jazz musician, I'm intrigued by, I'm, I'm, I probably only listen to electronic music. I don't listen to jazz music anymore. Like, or there are certain types that I do, it's basically the jazz musicians that want to get electronic music into their sound because they understand that like, all right, some of these things are implied. You know, We have to learn all these things about chord voicings and do all, and all this stuff like that. And now there are, there are software packages that are like easy chord and like, not even just like the root position chords, but actually like the spicy chords, they're in there too okay, so what next? If that was all you had to offer, like uh, that's like the end of the road for you. And that, that, that stinks. So you're either going to succumb to it or you're going to do something about it. Gotcha. All right. So before we wrap up,
0: one thought that I do want to sort of see, uh, get your comments about is, if somebody wanted to learn more, if somebody wanted to start experimenting with, I guess from the programming perspective, mm-hmm. uh, um, start experimenting with, machine learning and, uh, audio tools, where would they get started? Where would, what would you suggest? You know, what was your, I mean, what would it be your journey or is it something else that exists now?
1: Yeah. My, my journey was interesting. Cause it's also uh, pretty piecemealed and I was being brought up at a very, uh, specific time, that specific time being like pre the real rise of some of this, this deep learning stuff. Um, and so, I don't know if my journey is the right one, but definitely there are so many resources online, just starting with like the Coursera course on machine learning already starts to get you there. And frankly, there are so many GitHub repos, so much open source code that you can already get going by basically just doing template matching. Being like, okay, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, put it together, see what happens. And you know, you, you can you can already do the applications without even understanding exactly what you're doing, which for better or worse, you can you honestly it's one field that you can do that in and that's like a little bit unfortunate because that's why things get a little bit uh, uh, confounded and confused all the time. What is this, what is that? And you'll you you you, mm-hmm. you can see you you know when you're talking to a person that doesn't fully understand the application, the the underlying thing and is just in the application space. Um but it's really awesome that you can learn the applied stuff and the theoretical stuff, um, almost as parallel tracks. But also, there there's such great synergy in being able to kind of learn it at once. That that's basically all all the open source stuff. It, it, it just fantastic. Great. All right.
0: Last question. Yep. Um, so, is there something in doesn't necessarily have to be anything involved with product or something that you can't talk about right now, but is there one problem that you're really sort of fascinated um, to work on yourself or that people are trying to solve fa- that you're fascinated about? Yeah. Right so now? I,
1: I'm very intrigued by uh, like singing voice conversion work and some of the advances that are happening in voice conversion. Um, and it's, it, it, it just very interesting to me, especially because the voice is something so near and dear and it's also like you know one thing that happened is that like now all these bedroom musicians got empowered right and they got empowered because you know these different plugins came out these different sound libraries came out so they have been able to morph the way that they sound they used to just sound like a a crappy casio keyboard <laughs> really is what they sounded like before and they've been empowered by all of these advancements that happened that actually enable them it's a little bit isolationist but we're also living in isolationist time that like really you can do something amazing in your bedroom you can have that conversation with yourself and mm. and become like a new you going through that and one thing that has been s- somewhat fielded by using like you know samples and splice and all this stuff uh is like that vocal like that vocal identity piece, which is like, you know, I've been, I I can play with the sickest piano sound and like I have serum going on stuff and I have all these sick patches, but like my voice is always going to be my voice the exact way that it is for better or worse. Right. (laughs) Like, um, and so just, just that idea of how you can, um, add that as an, as another like way that you can creatively impart things, but not using maybe what's just, what was given to you, you know, (laughs) it's interesting to me,
0: you know? Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for that. Um, I can also
1: say, if you want another answer to that is like, you know, now we're also trying to be able to uh, visualize, um, kind of create like intuitive controls for our plugins so that we can kind of remove the barrier to entry on them. And just seeing how there have been some academic works, there's even uh, like products here and there that are trying to, really be able to get to the heart of the matter of like what kind of dials really affect processing the most. So you don't have to go through a plethora of knobs to really be able to achieve a sound. That's another thing that's pretty interesting to me. Just like what will the UI of plugins look like because of machine learning? Great. I'm
0: excited by that for so many for sure. reasons, and which takes me back to the performative, but I love that. So, um, Shahan Nishessian, thank you so much for taking this time. Um, as always, when I, when I talk to you, I learn a great deal, and um, I, I really enjoy working next to you and, and watching at, from some distance, but watching what happens and, and, and um, watching the future emerge. So, yeah, for sure. Thank well, you f- for taking the time. Yeah.
1: For sure. The feelings are mutual, John. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Headroom. Please join me next week when guests Nicole Davies and George Howard will come talk to us about the Open Music Initiative and some of the implications of using blockchain in audio distribution and audio creation. Headroom's a podcast produced by Isotope Incorporated, music by Smygonaut. Thanks to the team. See you soon.